Zandloud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today, our guest is the illustrious Marie Dutton Brown. Marie is a legend in the publishing business. She's a literary agent, an iconic editor. In fact, Black Enterprise Magazine, and I'm quoting, said that she is one of the major African-American players in the publishing industry and in the international literary community. Marie started at Doubleday in 1967 and rose to become the first African-American senior editor there. And we are just so honored to have her. I've known her for a long time. So Marie, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So nice to have you. So your your client list is long, and I want to touch on some of those folks. Quincy Troop, UMass Aquila, Susan Taylor, Norma Jean, and Carol Darden, Alice Randall, uh, Faith Rheingold. The list just goes on and on. Before we get started with that, though, I have a little segment that I call Short Order Questions and just a few Questions I want to ask you and get your quick reply and, and get us rolling. If that would be okay with you, I'm going to start. So non-living person you would most like to have a drink with. Um, is it necessary that I know them or have known them? <laughs> Not necessary at all. Okay. James Baldwin. <laughs> yes. All right. Did you ever meet James Baldwin? Not formally. I was just too reluctant, believe it or not, to go up to him and say hi. You know, I used to see him walking from Broadway to uh, Columbus Avenue from time to time. And I also would see him in at public venues, but I never introduced myself. I was just too intimidated by his his wonderful, wonderful literature and um I regret that. <laughs> so having this drink with him would be great. <laughs> I bet. I bet he would have enjoyed your company, too. Um, favorite New York City neighborhood? Well, there are two. Um, presently, it's Harlem. Formerly, it was the Upper West Side. And I guess that has everything to do with where I lived and live now. And how about your favorite local watering hole? Presently? Sure. Um, well, I don't hang like I used to, <laughs> so, you know, it's, a, you know, a more, more relaxed environment. But, you know, I enjoy going to Setepane and also to Maison Harlem. Oh, okay. Um, what time of year would you say most inspires you? When do you feel like the strongest sense of inspiration? What time of year? Fall. Fall. Oh, yeah. Autumn in New York. <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. Can't beat that. Yep. Any books that you would recommend or a book that you would recommend? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's really a tough one, uh, especially these days uh, as we see more and more books being published. Um, but I like to recommend to a couple of my authors. One, the first would be um, Jeffrey Stewart's um, biography of Alan Locke, who was one of the real conceptualizers and originators of the Harlem Renaissance. He doesn't get as much credit as others, but Jeffrey's book is The New Negro, a biography of Alan Locke. And incidentally, in 2018, it won the Pulitzer 
and the National Book Award. And of course, my present favorite is Alice Randall's Black Bottom Saints. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that I can attest to, and I, I read that. But Jeffrey Stewart is a, is a new one for me, so thank you very much for that. All right, last one. When editing or reading, do you prefer silence or do you have a little background sound going on? Um, it depends. It depends on what I'm reading, but I've learned having uh, been an editor in New York City, in closed spaces, that the background sound is going to be there. And also having a family and having grandchildren, <laughs> it uh, sometimes I don't have control over that. But, you know, thank God I can block out the sound and focus. You know, I mean, I think that that's learned skill, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it truly is. I can't read uh, or write for that matter with any lyrics going on. I need purely mellow, like piano, instrumental, if I'm going to have anything at all. So I, I guess it is a, a, an acquired skill to work with with noise in the background. So mm -hmm. let's dive in. Um, you've, as I mentioned, I mean, Marie, you're an icon and, you know, we're really, really honored to have you. I've known you for many years. My father Howard Johnson was just the, the biggest Marie Brown fan that there ever could be. And I was just so delighted to, um, reconnect with you recently. But I want to, um, I want to touch on something that, uh, Barbara Smith, uh, who we lost last year, she said something about you in her book, B. Smith's Entertaining and Cooking for Friends. And she said that she, she thanked you for your foresight, vision, and patience. And for those of us in your orbit, we know that that, you know, that comes pretty close to who you are. I would add uh, curious because I know that you're a, a lover of books and you're an, you're an avid reader. Do you think that these descriptions come close to who you are? I would suppose so. <laughs> yes. I mean, I had to reflect for a moment, but I think that, you know, each of those qualities is required in this business um, for various reasons. But I think that. Barbara was, you know, accurate in describing our experience together as well as, you know, my experience with any number of authors that I've worked with. And that, that actually was my next question. Do you, do you think that those are skill sets that have enabled you to be successful in publishing, just generally speaking? Absolutely, because one must be patient. Um, and it's a matter of patience that comes from both sides of the desk. Um, the authors must be patient with a long process, um, much longer than they anticipate. And then I find that I must be patient with the authors who are sometimes <laughs> impatient, you know, because of the process. So, yeah, I, you know, I think that that probably is the greatest quality that one has to have if you're going to engage in any aspect of publishing, whether you're an author or whether you're an editor or an agent. I mean, it's the waiting game. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I learned uh, a bit more about the process of editing through my experience with Oxford American. But I, I would like to ask you the question, what what is the job of an editor? Because my my impression was that you write and they edit, which means they subtract. But that's not necessarily all there is to the job. So can you can you just describe a little bit about how you would view the process of editing or the job of editing? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, editing is more complex than most people 
think it is. If you're working in a major or any type of publishing house in book publishing, uh, you're responsible for acquisitions. And you have to have that in order to have, you know, the um, project in which you are working. So acquisitions can be a very complicated um factor. You have to know exactly what your tastes are and be able to acquire. You have to know who you ultimately are publishing this book for. You have to have your eye on both the project itself, but also on its reader. So that's one aspect. That's early on. Um, then you have to really understand the audience and you have to understand also the publishing environment in which you're working. You're not going to, you know, acquire a book that just doesn't fit the vision of your publishing house. So once all that happens, once you go through the acquisitions pro uh, process and getting approvals in house and then going through the negotiation of the contract, and then finally, there's that point where, you know, you are connected directly with the author. And so in that process, that's my favorite part of the publishing process is connecting with authors, reading their work, making it better, agreeing and disagreeing as to what the ultimate outcome has to be. And then finally, publication. But that's only getting us halfway there. Um, we also, as editors, have to work to sell the book. So that involves marketing. That involves publicity. That involves sales. And we interface with all of those departments in the publishing house, as well as with the author, as well as with the author's agent. So it's it's quite complex. Uh, you know, it's it's more to it than, you know, just taking those words from a manuscript page and having it printed, you know, and next your, you know, your book is in a store. No, there are all these other facets to, you know, creating the book itself. Yeah, it's it's starting to rem remind me of the the restaurant business in that you know you have to wear so many hats. It's uh, most people that uh, think they want to go into the business have have no idea. I'm curious though, you know, because of the the lengthy process, Marie, that obviously that takes a lot of vision. Have you ever been in the midst of working with someone and you had a certain vision and you thought that the climate was right, especially when it comes to African-American work? Because and I'll get into this a little bit later, because you talk quite a bit about changing tastes and, and how we come and go, you know, in terms of uh, the publishing world's appetite for our for our stories. But have you ever been in the midst of a process in, in working with someone and all of a sudden the story drifted away from what you initially thought was what it was intended to be or what you felt was right for the market. And, and if that has happened, what, what do you do to correct course or do you abandon a project? What, what do you do in that case? Um, that's a tough question because um, generally um, I have acquired or worked with authors who really know what they're doing <laughs> and who have, you know, I mean, it's not perfect from the beginning. I'm not suggesting that at all, mm -hmm. but um, I think that when that happens, um, it's again, a negotiation and that is always 
a very sensitive situation, especially with a creative person who decides, well, I can do this another way or I can do this better. And you have to tell them, but that's not what we signed up for. And um, and there can be those tense moments. But I think that like anything else, you know, the outcome, both parties want, you know, the best outcome. So it's give and take. You know, it's, you know, a compromise. It's a collaboration. And the best collaborations result in that kind of um, compromise at, for the best. It's not that you yield and say, OK, you can have your way, but, you know, look out. You know, yeah, I get my way next time. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, or, I, know in, I know in working with you on a couple of things, I, I felt the gentle uh, hand of your guidance. But it it was just that, you know, it was it was gentle and it was encouraging more than it was, you know, commanding me to do something that that, you know, you ordained. So I'm curious with the with the amount of writers and you and I know that you kind of, um, you know, you stay low key these days because if you opened your door and, and, you know, had your information public that, uh, all you would be doing is, is answering requests for people that want to work with you. But how, how is no for you as an answer when someone has, has found you and has tried to engage you in their work? Is, is no an easy answer for you? Oh, my goodness. You know, that's the first question that has really caused me to experience chills. <laughs> because <laughs> I cannot lie. No, it's not, it is not easy for me to say no. And in fact, I have been thinking about that this morning because I had so many, you know, requests for, from people who want to have a conversation about their work. And, you know, I will make the time, but I also suffer the penalty because it allows less time for me to do the work that is necessary and also to just have some time out from this work. Yeah, sure. sure. You know, it's interesting, too, Marie, because as fast as the world has gotten and technologies made everything available at our at our fingertips, and I'm sure. In some regards, that's made your job uh, or the process of some of the work that you need to do easier. But reading takes time, right? Editing and, and analyzing material takes time. And that really, that process can't move any faster than a human being, or in this case, than, than you can do the work. Is that right? Exactly. You know, I'm always reminding people that, you know, this isn't the music industry. I mean, you know, you can um, play a tune and or, you know, a few tunes and in 30 minutes, you know, whether or not somebody has it or doesn't, you know, um, but it takes hours to read manuscripts, particularly full length manuscripts. And it's not just that you're reading it once, particularly after it's been acquired by a publisher and your author, you know, submits what they consider the final manuscript. I have to read that before it goes into the publisher. I have to read it thoroughly, even if I've read it before, because, you know, often editors don't have time to really edit, to do the line editing that is necessary. And those books end up in production and published at, with, you know, all of what could have been edited is still, you know, a part of that work. So I'm, you know, constantly reading. I mean, in this particular 
season and era that we're going through now. I mean, people certainly have more time to write. <laughs> and so I am certainly the recipient of many of those All efforts. All that creativity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but for me, you know, I have to remind people again, patience, you know, is required because I'm reading thousands of pages. I could just have three manuscripts on hand and those a thousand, that's a thousand pages, you know. So, you know, it is a process and it does require patience. Yeah. I, I can appreciate that. Um, so, you know, because I think a lot of our, our listeners are Los Angeles folks and creative people, I, I do want to ask you, um, and, you, and I don't know if this is a question that you despise, but what advice can you offer for aspiring writers? And you can even be specific is aspiring African-American writers. OK, well, I think it's just basic. You know, I think that one of the things that I find is that um, writers in particular know very little about the industry, very little about publishing, very little about the process, how books are published, you know. And at one point, you know, in the history of book publishing, and especially when I started, um, there were very few reference works or very few publications that just, you know, discussed how to do this and what was required. And I think that it's so important for the writer to whatever their intention is to know the business that they're getting into. I mean, I think that there are a few businesses. Well, perhaps not. I mean, you're probably one where people think I can do that. <laughs> you know, um, I can write, you know, I and I, you know, my book is as good as that one or even better. But they have no understanding of the industry. So as, you know, research, you know, it doesn't require that you go to, you know, graduate school to get an MFA in literature, or, you know, or take a publishing procedures course at the graduate level. But there are plenty of books that, you know, are available that gives you the background that prepares you for the experience that shows you exactly what you need to do and what you need to know. I mean, whether you're writing fiction, nonfiction, you know, empowerment, self, you know, which is self-help, self-care, whatever the category you're writing, you know, uh, you can find some information that really makes it, you know, easier for you to enter into the, the field. There are many books that, you know, provide information about agents, about editors, um, about whichever category you're writing in, whether it's science fiction or children's books or, you know, cookbooks. I mean, there, you know, the information exists so that, you know, you as a writer, I think folks can really cut down on a lot of pain and, you know, disappointment by just doing a little bit of research as you would with any other area that you'd seek to, you know, enter into a professional base. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense and dispels some of the illusions that folks have, but, you know, and prepare yourself for, for what you're getting ready to, to take on. And before you approach folks like yourself, 
if you can find Marie Brown, um, <laughs> you know, have a little background information. So well, I want, they can I want, find me. <laughs> I want to take a step back before um, dealing with some more uh, current topics and and talk a little bit about your your background because I I really found it fascinating, Marie, as I traced your um you know, your 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 education at Penn State. Uh, and just kind of look at the, looked at the dates that you were in school and then you ultimately taught in the public school system. And those dates correspond with some very significant, um, things that, that were happening, you know, in history during the sixties. And, um, I guess my, my first question is that, um, you know, you were, you were part of the 1% of the student body, uh, of uh, the African American student body in 1960. To, uh, I believe the year that you graduated from Penn State. Um, so what impressions were left on you after attending, you know, a prestigious school like that and being, you know, the, such a small part of the overall student body with all of the significance of what was happening in the 60s? Well, Penn State being where it is and being um, a state University in Pennsylvania. In a sense, I was isolated. You know, um, our African American black student body, those of us who found ourselves in the center of the state, in fact, in Center County, were a small band of young black people who had no adult presence, no African-American adult presence on campus. There were no professors, no college, you know, uh, counselors. Um, and it wasn't until I looked back at it, you know, several years later that I thought, wow, that was such an incredible experience. I mean, how did we even get through this? You know, perhaps there were 250 of us on campus, but somehow we managed. Um, many of us were from either Pittsburgh or from the Philadelphia area. So we had, you know, our other lives. We had our urban lives. And I think that one of the things that really kept it together for me was that I was really engaged in, you know, uh, black life in Philadelphia. Um, I also uh, had parents who were engaged in black life. My father particularly was um, an activist in our community. However, his profession was civil engineering, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but he would take me along to his various community meetings and so on and so forth. And um, he also was a member of a organization called Fellowship House. And Daddy was responsible for uh, bringing Martin Luther King to Philadelphia in the early 60s and uh, with together with the founders of Fellowship House, Marjorie Penny. And so, you know, I was engaged in that aspect, which I think really strengthened me, you know, for the journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and your mom and taught English. And yes, and my mother taught uh, English at urban high schools in Philadelphia. And so the reading factor was always a part of my life, you know, um, because 
I would read her books, you know, the books that she had. And, you know, that was really significant. As I think about it, you know, the publishing aspects of my life, though, all of that was just accidental. I mean, it was it was uh well, it was kismet. It was sometimes I think that, you know, uh there was there were other hands at work there that I just did not see because the woman, Loretta Barrett, who brought me to New York just for a conversation about what I was doing in the Philadelphia school system with intercultural books, happened to have taught with my mother. And it was interesting because I remember when Loretta left to go to New York and it was conversation at our dinner table about well, you know, there, Loretta Barrett, she's leaving. She's going to New York to a job as an editor in publishing. And my mom said, so you should think about doing something like that. And I looked at her like, are you kidding me? What is that? You know, what are you talking about? All I know is that when you graduate from school, you get a job as a teacher or a social worker. That's it. So I want to let's pause there for a second. I want to come back to to the series of events that led you to Doubleday. But it's very interesting to me. You went you you went into education uh, in Philadelphia in the public school system and you worked on diversifying the public school curriculum, which at that point did not offer a lot of uh, history relative to African-American experience. And at the same time, as I mentioned, the 60s were just were, were so turbulent. You started, I believe, in 63. That was the year JFK was assassinated. The March on Washington, the I Have a Dream speech in 1965, while you were still there, Bloody Sunday, of course, in, in, in uh, Selma. And then you know, you, you work on introducing this public school curriculum while these things are happening. You have socially conscious parents. How how inspired were you by the, the events or how much were the events mirroring what was what was your, your focus in terms of what you were trying to accomplish within the school system? Or were these things just happening and and you were doing what you were doing, but you, of course, were aware of the events? And I'm curious oh, no, I was very much engaged mm-hmm. in uh uh, you know, emotionally, I would say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in what was happening around me. I can still remember to the day the vice principal running into my office during a parent teacher conference saying the president has been assassinated. I remember everything clearly from that day and, um, just being in a fog that whole weekend as everybody was watching on television. And what was also interesting was that on August 28th, 1963, I did attend the March on Washington and with one of my best friends um, who had come home from her job and said, oh, well, I, we have a ride to the March on Washington. And my parents said, you're not going. It's going to be, you know, a riot. It's going to be terrible things going on at Washington. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, I was an adult um, at that time. So I said, nope, I'm going. And so we went. And that, of course, was informed, that action was informed by our involvement in protests and marches and activism in Philadelphia during that time. You know, I remember going to see Stokely Carmichael. He was in town, uh, you know, just we were just active and we were involved, you know. And so the school system, you know, they at that 
period, wanted to do something to, you know, integrate both the schools through busing, because that was going on during that time, and also to add to the curriculum. And so also there were many, many publishers who were now beginning to publish books that were reflective of, you know, multiculturalism and African-American history or Negro history or whatever it was called during that time. So, you know, that is how I became engaged in, you know, publishing. It was a direct result of working in the school system and uh, being an advocate for multicultural, as they called it back then, multi-ethnic books and sharing that knowledge with schools at every level, teachers, students, parents and school administrators. Well, it's interesting to me, you know, that it's kind of been a through line uh, in your life, you know, as being an advocate for African-American now to, for, for writers and, and in the publishing community. But let's talk about uh, Loretta Barrett. And she was friends with your mom, as you mentioned, uh, an opportunity uh, became available for you to perhaps go to New York and, and meet with her at, at Doubleday. And it, I think you said it was just a, intended to be a casual lunch initially. Yes. It was. Um, actually, Loretta had come to Philadelphia, to the Philip, back to Philly to talk about the multicultural books that she was working on at Doubleday, which were the Zenith books. And it was a series founded by Charles Harris, who perhaps was the first African American in book publishing in any kind of significant position. So she's came to speak to our in-service group at the Office of Intergroup Education, and she discovered that I was Mrs. Dutton's daughter, and so she invited me to New York. Um, whenever I was in New York, we should have lunch. So, of course, you know, I knew nothing about lunches in New York, <laughs> but I called her when my best friend and I came over on our Easter break because in the school system, we always had that week off. And I called Loretta. She invited me to lunch. And then we had a really fancy lunch at a French restaurant, first French restaurant ever, <laughs> you know, Leg Long. I'll never forget that. And I said, wow, this is something. Two hours for lunch, you know. And then we, she said, well, I'm not coming in tomorrow, a double day, but I'd love for you to speak to some people about what you're doing in the Philadelphia school system um, with multicultural books. And I said, fine. And so I did go to double day uh, the next day and um, I talked to them about what we were doing in the school system. And before I left, they said, would you like to work here? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> this is a job interview? <laughs> because in my experience, you know, if you were seeking employment, you applied for a job. And mm -hmm. in the school system, you took a test and almost in every other professional opportunity uh, for black folks at the time, you took a test. So I said, um, OK, I'll think about it. And I went home to Philly and I thought, well, I guess I can return to the school system if I don't make it here in New York, um, but I'll never have this opportunity again. So that was 1967. So that was in the heat of the um, civil rights era. And there I was working on Park Avenue. 
having never been in a skyscraper before. <laughs> Living the dream. Now you um you, you took an apartment on the Upper West Side, and and when I read this, it just shook my head. A two dollar a, a two hundred and fifty dollar a month apartment you and a girlfriend shared. Um, did you choose the Upper West Side, or did it choose you with with that two hundred and fifty dollar a month rent? Well, what happened was that Anne. Um, Ann McLaughlin was my, we lived next door to each other in Philly. We were best friends. We did everything together. And so Ann said, well, I'll go ahead to New York and I'll find a job. And she did as, you know, an executive assistant at Columbia University. And then we decided that she had better look for an apartment. And I said, yeah, because, you know, I'm going to move over in a month. And so she found this apartment on West 90th Street, uh, you know, a floor through parquet floor, you know, two bedroom apartment, 250 bucks. Yep. And so I moved to New York and that was it. Yeah. Um, and OK, so you you remained a double day. I think you were there for a couple of years initially to 69. And then you meet your future husband. You move to Los Angeles and uh, become the editor in chief for Elon magazine, which got a lot of praise, um, but only lasted a, a couple of uh, publications, a couple of issues. Um, anything that you want to share about the experience with Elon? You moved to Los Angeles and anything about L.A. or, or the magazine you want to share? In L.A., Elon came later um, after I'd moved back to um, New York. But when I moved to L.A., my husband was in school at Art Center College of Design and he was a graphic artist and so on. Um, there's a lot that I can say about that period. But when I got there, you know, I looked for a job in publishing and there weren't exactly a lot of opportunities there. I mean, it, I had some really funny interviews. I mean, one interview I went to, it was advertised as a publishing job. And as it turned out, it was adult publishing. It said adult publishing, but I didn't know what adult publishing was. I didn't know that that was, you know, uh, you know, those books that were, you know, behind the curtain in the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> all of that. I was so stunned when they said, oh, the editorial assistant job in this magazine is, you know, for adult folks. And I, and I said, yes. And then they showed me and I said, oh, no. So then, you know, uh, I had a few other interviews that were just inconsequential. But one day when I was walking around in the neighborhood, I saw that there was a bookstore in the Midtown Shopping Center. And um, I went in and it was a black bookstore. And it was started by Mrs. Mary Cleves, who had been a librarian at um L.A. High School, who was on a sabbatical leave, and she had started a bookstore during her sabbatical. So I asked her about a job, and she said, oh, no, my partner and I, you know, it's just a small store. And so I uh, left my number with her, and about two weeks, she called me and asked me, would I come and watch the store because her partner had quit because they weren't making any money and there was no profit and the book industry wasn't what um book selling industry wasn't what he thought it was going to be. So I watched the store for two years and it was the best of times that I could have ever had in L.A. Because I met so many interesting people who found the bookstore. Bronze Books was the name of the store. And, Where was you know, th there I was. I ended up, 
you know, in my world. And Mm -hmm. at that time, I also took on a freelance job as the editor of The Black Politician, which was a publication that was started by State Senator Mervyn Dimely um, uh, in California. And so I was pretty happy, you know, um, doing this because I lived in the bookstore and I was also, you know, doing this freelance editing job. Where was the bookstore located? Um, near San Vicente in La Brea, um, in okay. the Midtown Shopping Center. Uh-huh. This is just this little shopping mall. Yeah. Now, I, I moved to L.A. and stayed for 30 years. You moved and stayed for a couple of years. <laughs> Obviously, the L.A. bug didn't last long for you. Uh, well, what happened, what, what happened was, <laughs> uh, I just kept longing for my book publishing life in New York. And, um, Kenneth had graduated from Art Center and, and then of course there was a major earthquake. So that wasn't, there was, there was, <laughs> you know, not a lot of, you know, prompting anyone had to do. I just said, okay, I'm going to go visit my mom. But then I knew I was never coming back. <laughs> so um, you stayed at Doubleday for um, about 10 years? Yeah, a little short of 10 years, because when I came back to the East Coast from L.A., um, I was in touch with people at Doubleday and they uh, sort of recruited me again and asked me, would I like to have my old job back? And I said, sure. You know, so I was, you know, um, staying with my mom in Washington with my daughter. And um, I said, I will be there on the first thing smoking. So I did. <laughs> I, I left um, D.C. and moved to New York. In the meantime, Kenneth was slowly making it across the country um, driving. And um, I started Back at Doubleday, you know, um, in um, I guess it was '72. And um, so, before we, we we turn to some more present events, what what would you say was the most significant takeaway from your Doubleday experience, if you can summarize that? I mean, there was so much. Um, you know, my life and my working life is really focused and purely focused on what books I acquire and what authors I work with. And from my very first author, um, very first book I edited was Vibration Cooking by Verda Mae Grosvenor. And Verda really was, became, you know, such a friend. And, and if I survive that experience editing vibration cooking i knew i could do anything (laughs) and she also knew it as well you know because berta you know was quite you know a character in her own right and in addition to you know being this wonderful wonderful cook she also was all at the time that i was editing her was playing uh was singing with sun rock so that had to be uh, quite, a, you know, an experience for me. But subsequently, you know, I worked with so many authors. And during that era in publishing, I was, you know, all the way up to the time that I left in the 80s. I was able to acquire books that I felt filled a need. A niche in, you know, African-American book canon. You know, I couldn't 
acquire every book that I wanted. Those were the challenges of the day. You know, I certainly did not have carte blanche, you know, like, oh, here's a book that I would love to do. And many times, you know, I can think of books that I was denied. I was turned down at the editorial table, books on black theater and black dance and people just because people who made the ultimate decision just could not see the market. But in each instance for with each author I worked with, you know, I was strengthened. I, you know, I can say today that I'm still in this industry because I learned how to take disappointments uh, and to, you know, sort of turn lemons into lemonade and to keep on moving and to keep going. I think, you know, you are strengthened for a journey by both the good and the bad, you know, and many times I was the only African-American in the room and I learned how to manage that situation and also to adapt to what I could do. So many people came through and they just couldn't. They they just couldn't take that, you know, they couldn't take that (laughs) kind of, you know, uh, disappointment that came with rejection. That adaptation uh, when you're the only one in the room is a special skill, I think, that some of us develop uh, out of necessity o- over time. So I can I can certainly relate to that. Um, the New York Times in, in December of uh, 2020, just this past year, published a story. They asked the question, just how white is the book industry? And of course, they come to Marie Brown for, for a quote. And you said something uh, very interesting. You said, quote, black life and black culture are rediscovered every 10 to 15 years. Publishing reflects that. And then you went on to say, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, that you attributed the fluctuation in publishers' support for black writers to the news cycle, which periodically directs the nation's attention to acts of brutality against black people. Publishers' interest in amplifying black voices wanes as media coverage peters out because, quote, many white editors are not exposed to black life beyond the headlines. What's your perspective, Marie, on what we've witnessed this past year and, and how it how it connects to these very um, insightful statements that uh, that you made, observations that you have? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I had to think about you really said that, Marie? <laughs> to the New York Times. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was a lot of silence coming my way from around the industry. But mm. anyway, uh, aside from that, I was, uh, you know, online attending a, a webinar um, about uh, book sales. Mm-hmm. And there's New York. Um, and um, it was really interesting to me because, you know, they had all the graphs of the sales for 2020 in the various categories and, you know, month by month. And when it came to the middle of last year, you know, from June through, I guess, August, the summer months, the woman who was, you know, conducting the webinar said, you see how book sales were so heightened during this Black Lives Matter moment, at which time I thought, "Uh uh-oh, 
here, here we go. Is it down real? To this, that, is, huh? this is <laughs> this is really what folks thought and are thinking um, that it's a moment. And one of the um, positive outcomes, because I always like to remain positive, otherwise I can't continue doing what I'm doing. But one of the positive outcomes is yes, there are many, many more black authors being published, many subjects that, you know, before uh, this moment would have not been acquired or, you know, would not have found publishing homes. Um, so that's a good thing. But on the other hand, there's a lot that is being published that is not good, <laughs> you know, that it's just being published because they think that, well, black folks want to read this or and many white readers are discovering black authors. But every book that's proposed doesn't deserve to be published. And what I know for sure is this, that when that happens and the sales do not meet the expectations, nor do the publishers profit from those books, guess what? They're going to look at the category and they say, well, we tried to do this and, you know, these books, you know, some, they, they, you know, they didn't succeed. You know, not everybody's going to be, you know, in that same category with, you know, Isabel Wilkerson and Barack Obama. Right. So, you know, but it's um, the constant grind of having to prove that there is a market, right? Exactly. And, but also to have books in print that we know culturally we would like to see and to read. If you're not in the room, then you can't explain who that audience or who that reader is. So generally, as Tony Morrison used to say, you know, it's about the white gaze. And when that you get the nod from them, then that pretty much means, okay, well, it's a go. But often the books that are approved are about subjects that we already know about. <laughs> We've already, <laughs> you know, we we know about Christmas addicts. <laughs> you know, we also know, you know, about certain quote unquote leaders and um, other aspects of black life that that they don't know. But it's always a discovery. You know, we're always being discovered. It's been said, you know, it's the term Columbusing keeps coming into the language when it comes to, you know, black folks. So, you know, yeah, we're we're being discovered again. 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 Yeah. You live in a historic neighborhood. I mean, Harlem has its own reputation, but even within Harlem, there's the community you live, Sugar Hill. And as you look around, Marie, around Harlem, and you see the effects of gentrification and the changes and, you know, that the evolution and, and you know, money dictates a lot and Manhattan real estate is, is valuable and you know, so is Harlem's real estate as, as part of Manhattan. But when you look around your community and, and Sugar Hill and, and Harlem, and you see the, the changes, uh, and you've lived there for, for quite some time. So some of them you, you may, you may welcome some of the newer restaurants and cafes you may like, but do you, do you sense a, an era that's, that's disappearing in a culture that is going to be harder to locate? 
Um, absolutely. Yeah. We see that all the time. I mean, those of us who are, who remain here and who have been here over time. I mean, just recently I was talking to a friend of mine and we were lamenting the fact that, you know, the Linux Lounge was gone and St. Nick's Pub was gone and, you know, uh, just any number of places, you know, have disappeared. I mean, because of real estate. Um, I happened to come to Harlem, you know, as a teenager to visit my relatives here who, you know, we would go, you know, Ralph and Connie would take us just everywhere to Frank's, the restaurant on 125th Street and, you know, Sugar Ray's. We would, you know, we, we would just because he was a big deal in Harlem. We could just be underage and hang out, you know, and all of that. I think that's sort of fed into my desire to one day I'm going to move to New York, you know, but, and so Harlem was really changing then. And then I saw it in the 60s, 70s. And then during the height of, you know, the crack epidemic, which, you know, I felt was, you know, a deliberate effort um, because so much real estate was warehoused. So many people were moving out and just giving up their property for little or no, you know, money. And then in a blink, it became something else, you know, uh, and, uh, and that's, you know, that's sad. It really is. I'm on the advisory council of an organization called while we are still here, that mission is to just document just two buildings in Harlem, you know, 555 um, Edgecombe and 409 Edgecombe. And these buildings were where, you know, Paul Robeson lived and, you know, um, Du Bois and just so many people in Harlem, you know, uh, because that was the only place they could live. These were historic residences, but there's so many others, you know, um, and so many other places that have, you know, been, you know, just either destroyed and redeveloped. Fortunately, we still have, you know, the Schomburg here and um, and that will remain here, as well as other Harlem institutions, you know, with Dance Theater of Harlem, Harlem School of the Arts, Harlem Stage, um, the Caribbean Cultural Center, uh, African Diaspora Institute. There are several and of course, the Apollo, how could I not mention the Apollo, you know, but these institutions, you know, have really, you know, been able to sustain their presence. And it hasn't always been easy, but, you know, and to just, you know, sort of plant their foundations so that, you know, much of the culture can remain within the walls of these places. Well, that's certainly something that you know we would hope to see happen. Um, you know, Marie, with um, with all of the various boards that you've sat on, continue to sit on the the writers whose work you've helped to produce, guidance and encouragement you've offered to to so many, and and not to mention the trail that you've blazed and the and the dignity with which you have carried yourself and continue to carry yourself. You're just you're someone that that you know I, I think really is is deserving of a lot of celebration. But I'm curious, what gets you out of bed in the morning and and ready to face the day? <laughs> the work, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the work actually, and the fact that every job that I'm working on, every 
every manuscript, every author, it's all different. It's, you know, and it's exciting. I've never taken on any project that I was not excited about. You know, I'm not a trend following, you know, person. <laughs> you know, it, it has to strike a chord with me. I have to be really engaged in it. And because, you know, there's a vast number of projects that I'm engaged at some place or other in its development. You know, I can get excited about, you know, any number of things. I also, you know, am fearful. I'm, you know, holding my head and saying, oh, my God, how am I going to get all of this done? <laughs> but it's certainly, you know, a motivating factor, you know, because the rewards are great. The rewards, are, you know, I was on a, a call the other day with Go On Girl Book Club. And, you know, we were talking, uh, we were on a panel, um, Linda Duggins and Tracy Sherrod and I, and we were on a panel talking about the rewards. And the rewards are, when that book shows up, you know what that feels like. <laughs> you know, when you actually see, you know, the fruits of your labor and you see where this effort went and what was produced. I mean, that's what is so exciting to me. I mean, I live in the world of books. I live in a house of books. I mean, it's just all too much. It's overwhelming. In fact, I just promised somebody cartons of books today, this morning for their community project. But that is what it is. And it's perpetuating truths. I mean, that's, you know, I can't do a lot of things. I mean, I'm not you know, that kind of leader or club woman or organizer or whatever. But, you know, if I can, you know, facilitate someone's message getting into print that will live forever, you know, then, you know, that's what makes me excited. And, you know, that's the motivation. And I still can't believe I'm still doing this. <laughs> Well, that, that, that's exactly what you've done. So um, it's, it's so great to hear that your, your passion is connected to your life's work. Um, we're, we're winding down here. I just had a couple, of, uh, a couple of questions, Marie. So any chance we might get a memoir from you at some point about your life? Well, um, that's the question of the hour. <laughs> uh, I have about... Mm, Five, you know, people working on this memoir with me and urging me to come on, Marie, let's just, you know, um, do this. And I really, you know, I, I have to commit to doing it because, and it's not so much out of my wanting to see my life in print, but it's the history that I know is important. And it's, and that's what is significant. And it's very sad to me that, you know, here we are in 2021 and there is not a single volume available that tells anything about any black person's life in book publishing, period, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that is what I do. <laughs> you know, this is what I've seen. And I was online at the Medgar Evers um, National Writers Conference discussion tribute to John A. Williams and to Paul Marshall on Saturday. And, you know, the people on the um, 
panel included um, Mary Helen Washington, one of my early Doubleday authors, and of course, Ishmael Reed, you know, um, the iconic writer, and Linda Villarosa, and um, a few other people. And it just, you know, I was just overcome emotionally just watching mm. this panel on a computer screen. But I, what I realized was that I knew all of these people and I know them in a personal way. Even, you know, the late John A. Williams and Paul Marshall, who they were categorizing, uh, characterizing rather as unsung literary heroes. And um, they had created such a beautiful body of work. So, you know, that also brought home the fact that, you know, I just have to find the time and to write something. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I certainly hope you do. I mean, there's the, there, there's no other roadmap. You know, you you really have, you, you have the blueprint and I don't know who else could possibly tell that story other than you. Last question, Marie. Are you feeling optimistic these days? Period. <laughs> period. Question mark. Not period. Question mark. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. You know, I vacillate between being optimistic and also worrying about the future. I won't say that I'm not optimistic. I think that there's somewhere in between, you know, the whole why bother, you know, um, attitude. So, you know, I remain optimistic just because I realize through history that there have been so many periods that as black people we've gone through, you know, and I think a lot about how we are exposed to so much via media which makes it more apparent than it has been in the past. But, you know, I also know that my history includes having grown up in the South, in Hampton, Virginia, um, and in Nashville, Tennessee, and during the era of segregation. And also being a student of history, knowing, you know, the history of black folks um, all the way from the, you know, coasts of Africa all the way through here. And recently I've been sort of focusing a lot on the Middle Passage. I mean, I've even allowed myself to go into that experience or imagine what it was. So I see that with effort and with, you know, commitment that progress is possible and thus I don't allow myself to become a doomsday person, you know, uh, and I remain, you know, in that particular mode because if I didn't, then I wouldn't get up every day. I wouldn't do the work. I wouldn't be talking to you, <laughs> you know, if I didn't believe that I could see a brighter tomorrow or that my grandchildren could. You know, I worry about all of it. You know, I fret about all of it. I'm angrier than, you know, I express. You know, um, But at the same time, I just think that there are forces of good as well as forces of evil. And I think that, you know, we can, you know, move toward a brighter tomorrow 
without trying to sound all cliche-ish and everything, but I do, I do believe in, you know, a better day. Well, thank you. I, that's inspiration enough for me and, and I'm going to leave it right there. And I, I truly thank you, Marie Dutton Brown, for your time today and, and your friendship and your guidance and, and just all of the, the work that you've put in over the years and the careers that you've guided and what you've made available to, to those of us who followed you and, and the general public and, and what we can read as a result of your work. So thank you and looking forward to that memoir. So get busy. Okay. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks, Marie. All right, folks, moving into how we move with uh, Ambassador Shabazz. Wow, Marie Dutton-Brown. I know. Aren't you lucky? I mean, what a gift to to capture her voice in this forum. It's so essential to chronicle people whose journeys are expressed as hers has been, as hers has lived. Mm -hmm. It's not just the work behind the scenes as an, as an editor, but it's what her life brings to the table to support any author, you know, um, because she allows that author based on her own life's dimensions to discover their own, express their own, you know, and, you know, when she gave the breakdown of what it takes it's not just, you know, submit a manuscript. It's really discernment, right? Because at the end of it all, at the end of 10 steps, you want to have a product that matters and you have to be a real porous kind of person to have to live your life, um, the life of the author and the anticipated one of the reader. No, you're so right. And that, and that's kind of what I was alluding to in my question to her about the process of editing, because in, in the little bit of work, an interaction that I've done with her, you know, I've experienced that it wasn't just the, the taking away process. It was the lens through which she has lived her life and through which she sees current events and then helps you to elevate the story that you're trying to tell uh, as a result of, of her experiences and her intellect. And she's just she's she's amazing. It's being quadrilingual, right? So it may all be one particular idiom of language, but there's a social component that has to translate and move off the page and into the, I guess, the oasis or the space that the reader receives information, right? So I know that I can speak really conceptually a lot and abstract, but I have to make sure that I'm using colors and tones and words that doesn't confuse the reader, right? So you need someone who understands who you are without interfering with your palate, right? right? Without without removing your palate. The palate is always key. And coming from a literary family, um, not always published, but it is part of like the gene pool that I grew up in. And, you know, and when she talked about New York, you know, every time I'm here, sheltered in place in a different in a different locale of the United States, which has been wonderful and cozy and it brings a lot culturally. But when I listen to someone kind of traverse New York and Yeah, well and I don't even I don't even mean the the rat race of Manhattan. People Mm -hmm. think about New York, but I mean the depths of food and history and heart and beat Mm -hmm. that is really unyielding, even amidst gentrification. Notwithstanding if you're there day to day, you can see the changes. But when you go and come back like I am, I can feel the bones of Harlem. Mm -hmm. I can feel the old narratives of Harlem. I can feel the the 
the gathering place of griots and storytellers ever present. That really doesn't change. We just have to update the generation, mm -hmm. right? So how do we make sure that's coming about? And I remember about four years ago, people thought books were going nowhere, you know, and now they've come back. Mm -hmm. People will crawl up in a chair and somehow or another, whether it's audio book or paperback in one's hand to hear the stories. And so when she talked about that, I thought about my traveling with my dad to work in Harlem, his early days in Harlem, which was just around the Renaissance, you know, just after the Renaissance and all of those eloquent writers that, that were there. I mean, it's endless. We know of the likes of Zora Neale Hurston and W.B. Du Bois Langston. and Langston Hughes. But, you know, there are others. I mean, the more frequent, more recent was Gwendolyn Brooks. But you have Alice Dunbar, who was the wife of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. There are Claude McKay, depending on, you know, what kind of things you are focused on. And it's endless. It just goes on and on and on. So... When I think about that and journeying with my dad amongst the likes of the Adam Clayton Powell's, people who are historic now, but at the time, they were just doing a day's work. Mm -hmm. They were just mm -hmm. part of the culture. They were they were part of the, the narrative. They were day-to-day -day and connecting the dots between the Garvey era and the Adam Clayton Powell era. Sure. You know, um, and just listening to men and women then. And I went to Dance Theater of Harlem and I did dance with Olatunji, the Nigerian drummer. And that was characteristic of everybody's everyday. You didn't have to be somebody. It wasn't about influencers. It was just about culture being shared and passed on. Um, no matter what side of, <coughs> excuse me, well, no matter what side of town you lived in. And I lived in Sugar Hill when I moved to Manhattan, you know, born in Brooklyn. Childhood, early childhood in Queens, up to Westchester County. And my first apartment was on Sugar Hills, Convent Avenue. We'll talk about a health segment next time. So when you um, walk those streets now, when you when you go back to visit, you you still feel some of the oh the, yeah. the vibrations that you Absolutely, remember? Because story doesn't move. Memory, you and I talked the other day, and I was telling you that Ruby D once did a toast at a dinner. And she says, you know, I'm not afraid of leaving because I know memory is something else, mm -hmm. you know, and memory is something else. I think the challenge is that the newer generation may not know enough about it. So it's really our task to to connect the dots of a structure of a building, even if there's a new swanky, cool restaurant or spot in there now. But what was there before? My 10th birthday party, surprise birthday party was at Wells Restaurant in Harlem. And that in those days was likened to my mother choosing the cellar in the 70s. Yeah. Chicken right? and waffles. Well, they, they're, they're credited with being the inventors of, of the well, combination of chicken Well, only if you know waffles. it. Only mm -hmm. if you know it. So that's mm -hmm. the key, right? So how do we tell these stories that move forward? And when I moved from Mount Vernon, New York, or Westchester, I was up in college in Briarcliff, and I moved into a Harlem apartment right on 140th and Convent, and history was around us all day long. Now, those people that I'm talking about were older. They were walking, you know, um, not not with so spry. But just like the corner table, you would you could pull up in a joint, in a bar, in a corner place, and sit and talk and rap and understand and learn and know. My 20s were quite flavorful um, when I was on my own living in um, Upper Harlem, 
and just navigating and absorbing all the things that I once experienced with my dad's space that suddenly was awakened again, you know, to be around Percy Sutton, Lloyd Williams, who is the chamber, the the founder or the presider over the chamber, Harlem Chamber of Commerce, who was a kid at nine around my dad and then came became his kind of chosen godson. Now he's about 80 and he's still the narrator of many things. No, I think, yes, there are changes. There's gentrification. But is it imposition or have we not connected the dots? You know, and to Marie's point about some of these stories that uh, that don't get told, um, hopefully more will. And I, I'm just reminded of places like 22 West on 135th Street. You know, that, that these great kind of lesser known. I mean, 22 West was a was a very popular place if you knew anything about Harlem, but certainly not as well known as, say, Sylvia's, but just as important to the community. So that's the difference in about 15 years, right? So 22 West was where my dad had a booth. That was his spot. They know which booth was his. And he and Mike Wallace would go there on Wednesdays, every wow. Wednesday. What no. a conversation that would have been <laughs> to, to this, take this part This was in. not the era of paparazzi. This was think right. tank. This is when Harlem right. was about oh, think tank. Right? That's beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think we should do a little Harlem segment. So let's uh, let's put our thinking caps on about that. And uh, I think we should revisit Harlem as a as a podcast and talk about, you know, some of these places and, you know, maybe get some insights from you as to, you know, I mean, that that Mike Wallace and your dad's story would be an interesting one to dive deeper into. So what do you say we do that in, a, in an upcoming podcast? I Harlem Revisited? I would love it. All right. Unplugged or whatever they say. Yeah. (laughs) Unsung, unplugged. (laughs) Ambassador Shabazz, thank you so much and uh, enjoy your your day. You too. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.